Hey, welcome to the Rooted to Live podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've been working through who we are in Christ over these last few episodes, who God says we are, and what it looks like to believe into that, live in light of these truths, and considering some of the lies in light of the truth. Uh, For every truth claim about a believer, uh, we can often be tempted to believe lies. And so it's very important for us to be encouraged to live in light of the truth. Uh, The last episode, we considered a bit who we were before Christ as we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and then concluded with more about who we are in Christ, that we are alive and raised and seated with Christ in a workmanship or really a masterpiece. Um, we are a supernatural art that God is putting together and creating, uh, weaving or painting, making us born to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so in this episode, we continue in looking in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. And we really come to the first command, and it's, I think, maybe the only command in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that we see in this letter to the um, believers in Asia Minor, specifically the city of Ephesus. And it's really a letter of encouragement to all believers for all time. But then in chapter 2, verse 11, we come to this first command of remembering. And I was thinking recently about what is the earliest memory I have when you think of your own life? How far back can you go? What's the earliest best memory, I should say, that you have. Uh, For me, I can remember at least around the age of four, maybe a little bit younger, of uh, going to a church that my parents were a part of uh, till I was the age of two, then we moved away. This is in uh, the Detroit area of Michigan. Uh, But I can remember going back to visit my grandparents at that church. And the reason why I remember the church so well is because in the classroom for three and four-year-olds, they had a big slide. I used to call the church the big slide church. It might have been even their version in the early 1980s, late 70s of being a secret sensitive church. This church had an amazing slide for kids. And I always wanted to go back to the big slide church. At the same time, around that same age, I can remember at least, well, my brother and I are four years difference in age. And I can remember him being in a crib and me being old enough to know he was in a crib, and I can remember around Christmas time that year, I might have been around four then or four and a half. Uh, I am certain I heard sleigh bells that Christmas Eve on the, on the roof of the home. And so, and you can challenge me on it, but I know what I heard. So I can think of some, I can go back pretty far. Uh, how far back can you go? When we think about the encouragement to remember, some folks don't like to remember who we were before Christ or thinking about our past. In fact, we even use a passage of scripture that Paul says, like forgetting what is behind and straining forward. Now, Paul can't possibly mean forgetting his story because he often shares his story with the people that he's seeking to shepherd, pastor, and lead. So really what the point of this first command in Ephesians is going to be is really about remembering who we were leads to rejoicing in God for who we now are. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, we read, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles of the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Hmm. 
So the command to remember is the only imperative in chapters 1 through 3. And the church in Ephesus, what's good for us to know here is that it's made up of both Gentile and Jewish Christians now. Uh, Paul is calling those that were not born into God's covenant people to remember their former circumstance and spiritual plight. And the first thing that Paul wants the Gentile believers to remember is that they were called names. And I think to myself, wow, thanks a lot, Paul. If I was receiving this letter, I thought, why do you want me to remember this, these terrible things about me or what life was like for us? So Paul's inviting them to remember what it was like. He wants them to remember uh, their background. And so some background for this, um, this early church, what's happening here is it was common then for Jewish people to look down on those outside of their heritage, protection, law, and way of worship, which is quite interesting since the rest of the world seems to look down on them. So what was the result of a ch- new church being formed made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? Well, the result, you know, was division and rivalry. We have rivalries even today. Some are more sporting. When we think about college sports and professional sports, you might have your favorite team versus someone else's favorite team. Uh, We think about at least where we are here in the United States, the political rivalry between um, parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. And maybe there's even more just simple and silly rivalries. Are you a person that likes Coca-Cola or Pepsi? Um, For myself, I'm a Coca-Cola man. Uh, Do you like crunchy peanut butter or smooth? I like them both. I don't mind crunchy peanut butter, though. What about you? You, There's always rivalries we have, but some are obviously significantly more serious. And when we look into the scripture, we see rivalries. So an initial rivalry within the church is Christians from a Jewish background versus anyone else who became Christians uh, that came from a non-Jewish background or Gentiles. So the Gentile believers weren't initially welcomed into the church very well. Gentiles had faced alienation from God's people in a few ways, the text says. Number one, socially, they were considered outcasts. And number two, they were alienated spiritually. That's what verse 12 is telling us, to remember that at one point you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we could make the same application to ourselves before Christ. How are we aliens to that? How are we alienated? Well, he gives this list, Paul does, that we were separated from Christ, meaning like no understanding of no relationship. It's through Christ that we have a relationship with God. He himself is God, but no one comes to the Father except through Christ, Jesus says. Number two, we were excluded from citizenship. That means we were not a part of God's people. Three, the text says that we were strangers to God's promises. That means like nothing from God to claim. Think about some of the promises that you hold on to from God's word. Um, A a really well-known one that people cling to tightly is that when Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, or I'll be with you to the end of the age, he says to his disciples. What would it be like not to be able to have that? It'd be be quite bleak, wouldn't it? It'd be quite uh, dim to think about a future with no promise from God to claim. And that's what Paul is saying. Before Christ, you were strangers to the God's promises. The fourth way that we would be alienated is that we were without hope. That means we're heading to destruction. No hope actually equals no joy. Hopelessness, you could actually call um, circumstantial depression. And so if there's that, the antidote to depression is the character of joy. Not the feeling, um, but the antidote to circumstantial depression is a deep-rooted contentment. That's how I would define joy. But without hope in Christ, without connection in that way, there's no joy. 
And lastly, the the fifth way that I see in the text that we would be considered spiritually alienated is that not only were we without hope, but then we were without God. So many gods, in fact, in fact, for the people that were growing up in Ephesus, there's lots of options for gods. Many gods, but not the God, creator of all. So what Paul is asking readers to remember, in light of all that he's written, as far as I, who we are in Christ in chapter 1, who we used to be before Christ, the beginning of chapter 2, and then back to who we are in Christ again in the middle of chapter 2, Paul is inviting his readers to remember that um, without Jesus, we've got nothing. So the problems described for the outsiders at the time actually continue to be a deeply rooted human problem today. Alienation, division, separation, and hopelessness. And if there was no access to God, I could ask, well, who's coming to help? I mean, if we're not going to look to Jesus, if Jesus wasn't going to come for us, who would you go to? Where would you go for hope and joy? And so people try. They try to find lesser things and their hope is hoping to have a great life, you know, that this is it, this is it. But the truth is, is we need Jesus. Verse 13, Paul continues, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hmm. So this is God's solution to separation and division, that God came to us in Jesus Christ. He is the rescuer. So because of Jesus, one-time enemies, now trusting in the same Jesus Christ, are friends. They are reconciled rivals. And more than that, they are a faith family or a community of faith. So therefore, the work of Jesus on the cross, his death, or as the text says, the blood of Christ, as his blood was shed, in light of his work, Jesus' work reconciles people to God, okay, and people with people. When redemptive history arrived as Jesus was born in human likeness, salvation was extended well past the people of Israel so as to embrace all those who would trust in Jesus into the people of God. That's what Paul is saying. So Jesus actually solves his life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus solves a proximity problem. And there's more. That would be enough. But there's more. Let me read the next section here. Chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. For he himself, that is Christ. It's an amazing sentence here. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Wow. So the phrase, he himself our peace, is our peace, emphatically indicates that Jesus alone is the believer's source of peace. When you think about the kinds of peace that exist, um, there's really only one true peace, and that's the character that comes from God in us as a fruit of God's spirit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. So Christ himself is 
the the author the, um, the author of that peace. But we settle oftentimes for fake peace in our lives. Think about uh, when your family uh, of origin would have fights in the home, and maybe you grew up in a situation where no one really talks about it afterwards. That's called sweeping it under the rug. I would call that cheap peace or fake peace. Uh, I grew up in a situation. Uh, uh, at a church I grew up in, I had men's basketball. I think it was on Thursday nights. And these were Christian men that would come together and play basketball for a few hours. And every once in a while, you see guys kind of get in a tiff. Or actually, some people would really blow up. And some would just act like jerks. And then a couple days later at church, we're supposed to be singing to Jesus. And you might see guys go to another person and say, hey, man, I'm sorry about the other night. They don't really say I'm sorry. They'll say, hey, are we cool? It was just a game. You know, I kind of got carried away. But no one's really owning anything. There's no transfer of forgiveness. And that's called fake peace. This would be another version of trying to gain peace or fake peace in a maybe a fight with a spouse when you say, I'm sorry you're hurt or I'm sorry you feel that way. That's not creating any kind of peace or resolution. We want a true peace. And so Christ is our peace. He makes peace and proclaims peace, the text says. But peace is unexpectedly both like a destructive and constructive act. The text says that division and hostility had to be destroyed and unity established. So to establish peace between us and God and people to people, Jesus Christ had to endure the violence of the cross and destroy barriers. That's the destructive part of peace. So for instance, you may already know this, but in the first century temple of God, it had literal dividing walls. So it had the court of the Israelites walled off from the court of the Gentiles. Signs were posted in Latin and Greek, warning outsiders not to go any further into the temple under penalty of death. And there, there were parts of the temple that only certain Jews could enter. And beyond that, an even more exclusive part of the temple where God's presence dwelled, called the Holy of Holies. And only the priest on behalf of God's people would enter it once a year, and actually only one time in his life. Then it'd have to be another priest, I believe. These, this means that access to God's presence was limited by walls, barriers, and division. But God, through Jesus at the appointed time, broke down all the barriers, making God actually accessible. So amazingly enough, sinful human nature, though, creates more barriers Divisions between race and gender, social class, and more. So local churches are no different, though. They create extra-biblical standards often of who like should be in or out, who should be allowed to experience God's grace that we all so desperately need. So why do we do this? Well, it's what we know. It's what sinful nature may do to feel comfortable or protected and even unchallenged. But I remember even as a child being told a different message about the invitation of God's grace to all. Maybe you grew up learning some children's ministry songs. There was one long ago that's probably not even politically correct anymore. And I think the song was, um, Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children. And so I know that we probably couldn't sing that anymore. That doesn't offend me. I get that. Um, But the message of the cross and the message of the gospel of Jesus is one that's to be extended to all, welcoming to all, and then creating peace with God and peace with one another. It would be appropriate when you look at a text like this that talks about Jesus breaking down barriers, providing an invitation to all to trust in him, that salvation is available to all, and so too is peace between all who are in him. It'd be appropriate to consider, do you um, have barriers in your life that declare the opposite of the song, Jesus loves the little children? Do you have barriers in your life that declare the opposite of his work on the cross? 
So God's description of reality or peace ought to be the definition by which we live. The barriers for all believers are removed in Christ, is what the text is saying. And this moves us then to recognize that any barrier that keeps people from knowing Jesus is unjustified because we all need God's grace in rescuing. Before Jesus, Paul is saying there were barriers. And another significant barrier was the law that was given to God's people. Ephesians chapter 2.15 says that by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. See, the law was viewed as an instrument of division that excluded outsiders, but now that the law is fulfilled in Christ's work on the cross on our behalf, the law is an instrument of integration for those who believe. When Christ died on the cross, the Bible says that the curtain enclosing the Holy of Holies in the temple was torn down. That means that God's presence was now available for all, not just a few. And because of that, all of us that are in Christ are in the same position before God. The unifying foundation of salvation And the people of God is Jesus Christ. And Christ makes all believers one. That's peace. How? Well, the vertical relationship with God then expresses itself in the horizontal relationship with others. But there's more. Something new, starting in verse 19 of chapter 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what is Paul saying? Because of what Christ has done, everyone who places their faith in him are considered citizens of God's kingdom. We're actually made for a king. When we think about politics, we're actually equipped and wired for having a king, and that king is Jesus. Christians now are hope-filled family members of God, is what Paul is saying. One people moving together on one track through one Savior, by one cross, one body, a new man, empowered by one Holy Spirit, as sent by the Son, given by a loving Heavenly Father. Functioning as a healthy family means there are no Christian spectators, by the way, of God's work. Think about this. What's the difference in your mind between a family member and a guest in your home? You know, when a guest comes, you want to be hospitable and host them and serve them. And you expect to take care of them. That's what you want to do. But when you have a family member of any age, you expect them to take responsibility for how things function in the home. This is like the idea or concept of having chores, whatever those may be for you growing up or what they are for your children. There is a difference, isn't there, between being a family member of your home and a guest in your home. The fact that Jesus is making not just a few new individuals, what he's doing is he's making a new people. It actually confronts the individualism, the Christian life, uh, what that looks like in our times. And that's what we, we usually pitch the Christian life as a, like a personal relationship with Jesus, which is true. And a relationship with Jesus is both personal, but it's both personal and corporate. And sometimes we're tempted to pick one over the other, you know. So the New Testament assumes that Christians are a part of a local expression of Jesus, the church, identifying with Jesus and with people. And there's more. Uh, Jesus is also building us up into a new body or temple, the text says. Well, how? As we collectively take in God's word together, we're being equipped to collectively bless others. 
1 uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says that you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we're believers are like living stones, and Christ is said to be as the cornerstone here in verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 2. So Christ is the strong stone, and the cornerstone of this new body or house or temple is Christ. Jesus makes it all possible. I don't know if you know much about cornerstones, but cornerstones in the ancient time were load-bearing stones of a structure that determined the lines of a building. But they carried the weight. They held basically the whole structure together by its own strength. Some of these stones found in Palestine weigh 570 tons. And so now we have this picture of a, the strength of a strong stone creating a, a whole new structure. And we are a part of that structure. We are stones in that structure. So individually, we have a relationship with Christ, but collectively, we also do as well. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 4 says that Jesus is the rock eternal. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that Jesus holds everything together. So Jesus is the cornerstone of the house that is made up of all those who have placed their faith in him, holding us together. Why would we divide ourselves? Jesus continually fulfills this role. And that's because no one else is strong enough or worthy enough to hold it together. And no one else loves us enough to do so. So, before Jesus, we're reminded in this passage that we were separated from Christ. We were excluded from citizenship. We were strangers to God's promises. We were without hope. And we were without God. But because of Jesus and the Father's love shown to us through his work, through Christ's death and resurrection, we are now at peace with Christ. We are now kingdom citizens. We are now a family with God's promises. We are now a holy temple with hope in God. Remembering who we were leads to rejoicing in God for who we are in Jesus. Jesus.